Tonight our scripture reading is 1 Kings 21, and we're continuing in a a series that Pastor Matthew and I have been uh, doing throughout the summer and the evenings uh, on the life of Elijah. So 1 Kings 21, here's God's holy and infallible word. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why don't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and And the king then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. 
Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. That's God's word for us this evening. Maybe you noticed I'm calling this sermon How to Win uh, the Culture War. You've probably heard that term, culture war. It, it, it usually refers to the conflict in our culture between more traditional conservative values and more progressive liberal values. Uh, the 1991 book, The Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America, helped bring us this idea that we've all now heard. And uh, someone else who brought it into the mainstream is Pat Buchanan in a 1992 speech at the Republican National Convention when he said this, there is a religious war going on in our country for the soul of America. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be as was the Cold War itself. And so a lot of people have used that term since then in, in, in kind of a, a tribute, this polarization in our country about things like abortion and gay marriage and, and a whole lot more that's going on. That polarization, people talk about it as a, as a cultural war, right? A culture war. Our story tonight is part of the history of a culture war too. A culture war that was going on during the time of Israel's kings. Our chapter begins with King Ahab of Israel. He notices this nice vineyard near his palace. He wanted the land for his own, offered to pay the owner Naboth for it or give him a better vineyard. Ahab was king uh, and he was a tough king, too, from what we tell. How, how do you refuse? And, and what, a, what an opportunity for a subject to please the king. But Naboth refuses, and it's because it's the inheritance of his fathers. And, and that's pretty important. In Israel, they didn't buy and sell land in the same way we do and the way our society works. God had the land divided up by families, and it was to remain with that family over the years, all the generations. So Ahab was asking something that went against God's will. And Naboth was faced with a tough choice, obey the king or obey the king of kings. He made the choice to obey the Lord and, and his word, the true, the only real king that matters, right? So Ahab goes home, he pouts, about not getting his way. He sulked on his bed, refused to eat. Sounds like what three-year-olds do, and I think that's what the Bible wants us to have in mind. 
His wife Jezebel says, stop pouting. You're the king for crying out loud. She takes matters into her own hands. The end result, Naboth is killed, and Ahab takes the vineyard. Elijah confronts the king with the word of judgment from the Lord, judgment against Ahab, judgment against Jezebel and their descendants. Ahab is sorry, seemingly, and so God decides to delay the disaster that he promised. A key to getting this, I think, is to see that there is a conflict of cultures going on. First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were written to God's people in exile. In their terrible situation, they're wondering, what happened? Why are we here? And they're being shown in the history of the kings what went wrong in their history, why they ended up in exile. And, and when, it, when it comes down to it, the issue in Elijah's day was the same issue that there was in the exile. This was the same issue for early Christians living in the Roman Empire, and it's an issue for us. How do believers serve their God in the midst of a culture that does not worship him? See, God had established a covenant culture for his people. He saved them. He gave them the way, the blessed way to live in covenant with him, in godly covenant with those around them. But the godless culture of the original peoples of this land was an anti-covenant culture that opposed God, it opposed God's ways. And so there's this culture clash. And the anti-covenant culture eventually won out. God's people increasingly embraced that way more and more over the course of their history and ignored God's covenant, which was their only hope. And as a result... The curses of God's covenant were activated. And that's why the people went in exile. Ahab's rise to power was a victory for the bad guys. We're reminded of that in that parenthesis at the end of this chapter, just how wicked he was. 1 Kings 16.31 tells us that Ahab was a wicked man to begin with, but then matters got worse when he married this Jezebel, daughter of the king of the Sidonians. They were part of one of those original peoples of the land of Canaan. They worshipped the false god Baal. Through Jezebel's false religion, the wicked culture, the anti-covenant culture, advanced in Israel like never before. Uh, you You can see in this chapter, even how she makes matters worse. I just, just this one little piece at the beginning, A.W. Pink writes, under pretense of comforting her afflicted husband, what did Jezebel do? She fed his pride and fed his passion, blowing the coals of his corruption. She fed anti-covenant values, evil. 
And it kind of goes without saying here, we could stop a minute, how a spouse can have a big influence for better or for worse in our lives. And that's why marrying in the Lord is so vital. And we just trust and pray that our, our kids, that, you, that they own that when they start dating. It's definitely a little sub-theme of this completely disastrous Ahab Jezebel reign in ancient Israel. I think we see this clash between God's covenant way and the pagan godless culture in a few major ways in our text that are worth highlighting. And and as we look at them, I I think you'll kind of see in the back of your mind, you'll be able to apply them to to our day, the covenant culture clash today. We see this culture war then, first of all, in terms of how a leader is supposed to act. God's covenant tells us what good leadership is. We see in places like Ezekiel 34 that the king in Israel was to be a kind of shepherd. And the people were the flock. The shepherd kings of Israel were to care for the flock and they were to lead them in paths of righteousness. Instead of this, we see Ahab clearly a king who looked after himself. You know, as he's sitting there reflecting on life and all his riches and power and wealth, is he thinking about how to serve the people, how to help the people? No, he's thinking about about adding a piece of property to add to his personal glory to increase himself and, and for sure, corrupt leaders everywhere in our world are putting themselves before their people. That was expected in ancient times in the cultures that didn't know the Lord. The typical Near Eastern king was a tyrant. When Jezebel says, is this how you act as king? She means, as a king, you do what you want. She would have learned that from Ethbal. That's her father, who was the king of Tyre, the king of the Sidonians. The idea of the anti-covenant culture was that a king is the end-all, be-all. No accountability. And that's in contrast to the covenant culture, which saw the king and all leaders as God's servants and serving not as powers to themselves, but under the Lord. And Ahab should have known that. Ahab was waging war against the covenant plan by ignoring God's will for the land here, that it was an inheritance. He didn't care about the promises of God, that this was the promised land he was asked to rule over, that each patch of land for each family was a special, tangible symbol of God's promises for every household. He should have known that and respected that. He ignored it, did what he wanted to do, like typical tyrants of kings. And we think of all that, we think of leadership today, and and we see how people all over the world are so disappointed in their leaders. We see leaders failing 
people everywhere, corruption in nations. Is there a leader out there in our world that is not corrupt? Is there a leader out there who puts the people before his own self-interest? I think there are, but they seem very rare. They are far and few between. We need leaders in our homes, in government, in the workplace who live out of the covenant culture of leadership. And that's ultimately what, what Sarah and I heard about at that Global Leadership Summit a few days ago. That kind of leadership. You know, elders in the church are called shepherds in the Bible. And the, the title pastor, of course, comes from that. One who cares for the sheep, a shepherd. But it's really the covenant vision for all leaders they be shepherds under the good shepherd. There's another clear way we see the culture clash happening in this chapter, and that's in how the powerful treat the weak. And this is a little bit related to the other point, but it's different. God's covenant tells us how to treat the vulnerable in society. God introduced among his covenant people a whole different perspective on the weak, the poor, the needy in society. The ungodly have a default view that the powerful can do what they want with the weak. Trample on them, use them to increase their own wealth and power. But the Deuteronomic Code of Israel ensured the protection of the weak, unlike all these other societies around them. For Jezebel, coming from a pagan culture without the covenant code, she thinks, hey, he's just a small farmer. Take the land. If you're strong and you can stomp on somebody, you do it. No problem. It's the way the world works. But the covenant perspective that God gives is exactly the opposite. Exactly because he's a small guy, you look out for him. In God's plan, you'll look out for the little guy. Increasingly over Israel's history, the powerful more and more stopped helping the vulnerable. And the prophets preached against it again and again. Of course, this has huge implications for our society today too. In our, in our voting in an election year, one of the big values we're looking for as God's people in a leader is that they'll use their power and influence to protect the weak. One of the highest of biblical values for leadership and for a just society. And we exhibit this covenant culture value, looking out for the weak any way we can in our own sphere of influence too. There's one more important area where there's a culture clash they're all kind of connected. This is in terms of justice. And we know how much a nation's justice system says about the nation. If you look at the justice system of a nation, you can see, is there righteousness there? Or is it full of corruption? God's covenant calls for justice in the land. In our text, we see tremendous corruption. Although Jezebel, as the highest leader in the land, the queen, was to ensure justice for all. Verse 8, we can highlight the issues. She commits forgery in verse 8. 
to start off this evil plan. Next, we see hypocrisy. Proclaim a day of of feasting, she says. She does it all under the guise of religion. Then Jezebel suggests and is complicit in perjury, which is lying in the court. If this whole thing had been prosecuted as a covenant lawsuit, our friend Naboth would have won hands down and happily gone home to the inheritance of his fathers. All the covenant laws were on his side, but instead, it's a kangaroo court. The outcome of the case was already determined for this poor guy. It was a complete joke, and he was innocent, but sentenced to death and killed. And so we see here, too, by failing to ensure justice for all, Ahab and Jezebel were fighting against the Lord's covenant culture, which is fighting against the Lord himself. A number of folks think that a picture of this culture war and the difference is the fact that Ahab wanted to turn a vineyard into a vegetable garden. Did you catch that? It was a vineyard. He wants to make it a vegetable garden. God's people are always called a vineyard in the Bible. Israel was a vineyard planted for the Lord, cared for by him. In the New Testament, we're the branches. Jesus is the vine. The only other time this word for vegetable garden is used is Deuteronomy 11.10 when Egypt is called the vegetable garden. And it's a slam against Egypt. God is saying Egypt is a land that requires a lot of human work and effort, like a vegetable garden. But God says, my land, the promised land I'm going to bring you into, that's a land the Lord cares for. His eyes are continually on it all year long. From what I understand, a vineyard requires little human effort. It's dependent on God's care and sustenance compared to a vegetable garden, which requires a lot of gardening. The, the, the gardener's got to do a lot there. And this, is, this, and this is how God's people are always called to live, of course. Not by our own effort. Not like we're not a vegetable garden. It's not by our own word and toil. Not by trusting our own skills and talents, but is a vineyard under God's care. If we just follow him, put ourselves under his care, live as a covenant keeper and not a covenant breaker, then you know what? We grow. We thrive if we just put ourselves under his covenant care. So we think about all this, and we have to admit that we too have ignored God's covenant ways. In these big areas, in many others, we've let the culture around influence our view of the world. We've let it influence our thinking, our actions. In fact, it's all so mixed in sometimes that that it can be mixed up in our minds. It's, It's hard for us to discern What is God's covenant value? 
what is the culture. And that's why we continually need to gather together, read God's word, and, and, and be shown the truth and the way. But in our hearts and lives, it's clear God's ways get squelched. God's ways get ignored far too often. And you know, we're talking about Ahab, but this all kind of makes me think of King David too, the man after God's own heart. You look, look at him. He got pummeled in the culture war too, big time. He didn't stand firm. He really blew it. When the prophet Nathan came to David after he really blew it, he told David the king a story. Maybe you remember this about a rich man who had a large number of sheep and cattle. This is in 2 Samuel 12. And then there was this poor man. And the Bible tells us this poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had bought. That's all he could afford. The man raised the little lamb. The Bible tells us this little lamb grew up with him and his children. The lamb shared his food and drink. The Bible says this lamb was like a daughter to him. It's precious, precious lamb. The prophet Nathan goes on in the story to say that a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man didn't want to take one of his own many sheep or cattle to make a meal for the travel. And because he was powerful and he could, this heartless brute took the ewe lamb from the poor man and prepared it for his traveler. Totally contrary to the covenant values. David, who had a heart for God's covenant ways, burned with anger at the story. That man deserves to die, he yelled. He's got to pay for that lamb four times over for doing such a thing. And you know what happened. Nathan looked at David and he said, David, you are the man. God gave you this entire kingdom, and yet you took another man's wife. And then you had him killed. And so, as a king, David was selfish. He trampled the weak. There was travesty of justice. And so it goes for all of us. We know the battle lines, but we still go down in defeat. The world's values win out in our hearts. They win out in our lives too often. What's the difference between an Ahab and a David then? Because we see they're the same in their sin. The difference is that David showed true repentance. We have a seeming repentance. You maybe heard I said that earlier of, for Ahab. A sorrow of, of some kind, and that's why God delays punishment. I agree with most people who think, though, that this repentance could not have been true repentance because the dogs are still going to lick up his blood. We read that Ahab tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and fasted. He went around meekly. It seems that this was an outward display, not an inner humbling, kind of like King Saul 
who was always repenting, but it was always external. It was never real for Saul either. King David is very different according to the Bible. He says back there in 2 Samuel, I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51 he says, against you, you only have I sinned. And that's the difference. That's what true repentance is. Not sorrow for getting caught. Not sorry that you're going to be punished. But sorrow that we've sinned against the majesty of God. The Bible tells us that the son of David would come so that our confession and our sins can truly be forgiven. Jesus, the perfect shepherd king, instead of coming to take our lives with all his power, he laid down his life for us. As we receive him in faith and put our trust in him, he empowers us to be people to live strong in the face of the anti-covenant culture. So, so how do you win the culture war? Here's how you win it. You be a covenant keeper in your life. Be a covenant keeper in your life. And you can do that when you belong to the one who kept covenant in your place and who won the war, whose kingdom will prevail. And we know all who oppose him will be cast into the outer darkness. And you know, though some days we feel, and I feel this way, I think more Christians do, we feel very hopeless and alone when we talk about the culture war. And, and, but I think the reality is that there are more covenant keepers out there than we think. If we look for them, there are stories all the time of Christians standing up for the Lord. And we got to look for those. We got to highlight those, be encouraged. I think of those, maybe you saw the synchronized divers in the Olympics speaking of their Savior. And even greater than that, that rugby team from Fiji, did you see that? After they won the gold for rugby, they didn't leave the field. They didn't do this asking for the praise from those around them. They didn't do this. They joined arms and they sang a hymn of thanks and praise to our God for all the world to hear. Check that out if you haven't seen it. It's incredible. I feel sometimes... Oh, there are just so many Christians making too many compromises with the culture and too many churches making compromises with the culture. But then God reminds me and he shows me that there are many standing strong too. There are many making a difference in our world. And ultimately, of course, we need to focus on ourselves. We can win the battles in our life in Jesus who has won the war Let's do it. Let's be covenant keepers in our life.